0: To all 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom, Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. Bless the name of Yahuwah and thank you for joining us this wonderful and wet, very wet here in Oregon, Shabbat. Thank you to all of our donors out there that do support this ministry. Without you, none of this would be possible. We are so thankful at the amazing, amazing things that are happening, and thank you all for writing in, oftentimes through email and snail mail. Please remember, subscribe to the channel. It really does make a difference. And those of you that are joining us on the chat today, Shabbat Shalom too. And uh, make sure that you give us some thumbs up if you are on the chat or watching because that does make a difference as well. And we'll get into today, Revelation chapter 2. We are in part 2 of Revelation chapter 2. And like I said last week, There's a lot in here, isn't there? A lot in chapter two. To give it justice, to give it justice, I want to spend the dedicated time in there for us. What a week. We live in the world, but we are not of the world. But are we affected by those worldly people? Oftentimes, and then we go to our prayer closets and we are strengthened, invigorated, given wisdom, insight, understanding, and able to be equipped more so we can go back and look in the face of wickedness, stand, and if you can still stand, stand in the name of Yahuwah. That's what it's all about, specifically as we head into chapter 2, the address here to the assembly of Smyrna. But to give us full context of what I want to talk about today, we'd have to go all the way back to the beginning so that we could declare the very, very end. And in Genesis, Bereshit, Genesis chapter 2, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12, did I say to? Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, Yahuwah said to Abraham... Abram back then, I want to make you a goy gadol, a goy gadol, a great nation. From you will come a goy gadol, a great nation. The Hebrew word there for nation is goy. The Greek word that is used to translate that Hebrew word in the Septuagint is Anthropos. Anthropos. Where of course we get the word anthropology, the study of man. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Genesis chapter 12 verse 2, the promise given to Abraham, out of you shall come a goy, a goy, a nation, gadol, great, a great nation. Now, As we delve in, we're going to find again the Greek word anthropos for nation, anthropology, the study of man. And this is my lead in, this is my intro, because you and I in Revelation chapter 2 specifically, we need to study, declare and find out who is the strong man. The Anthropos, the strong man. We need to name the strong man Anthropos, Anthropology, the study of man, because the strong man, my friends, is the gatekeeper. The strong man is the gatekeeper. In Acts chapter 19, verse 15, there were some vagabond Jews. They were exorcists hellacious, wicked as hell, exorcists. The seven sons of Sceva. And you'll remember the narrative in Acts chapter 19, verse 15. Hey, what's your name? What is your name? What is your character? Where do you get your authority? What is your authority? What is your legal right? Identify the strong man anthropos a nation Exorcists Wicked Evil Demonic This is what we're delving into. Because you'll remember the seven sons of Sceva said, well, Yahusha, I know. In fact, Paul I know. But who are you? The strong man, the gatekeeper is the synagogue of S.A. 10. And it's going to be identified because we need to bind the strong man which has just been loosed. Through, of course, the signing of the executive order which was just done in this prior week. We witnessed the final descent this week of bootleg Israel signed into an executive order. And you know, some things just don't change, do they? Because it's written in First Samuel chapter 8, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of the prophet Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be just like the nations. We want to be recognized as a nation, a nationality. We want to be just like the nations and that our king will adjudicate for us. He'll be the one that will adjudicate for us. He'll be the one that will go before us. And guess what? If we can get him to do that, he'll fight all of our battles. That just took place this week. This is the final descent of bootleg Israel as we now enter into apocalyptic excuse me, proportions at a level never seen in this goy nation, and the synagogue of satan, they turn the prophecies given to Abraham upside on its head, and actually use goy as a derogatory term against the followers of Yahusha. They say, "Oh, you're goyim, you're goy," but it's actually biblically a blessing to be the goy gadol, the great nation. You see, what is up is down. What's black is white. It is luciferic and occult. And today, the goi, the anthropos, the strong man will be named. The gatekeeper is the synagogue of Satan, and it has to be bound. It has to be bound. This is so important that the end-time saints that are the true believers that hold the testimony of Yahushua and keep his commandments, they have a common identity, those true believers. They identify the strong man. They wrestle with the strong man, the synagogue of Satan. We see that in chapter two, and we will see it again in chapter three. There's three things, three things. Number one, the synagogue of Tam wants to be like the nations, a nationality. Number two, they want to have their king adjudicate for them. And number three, they want their king who adjudicates for them to go before them and fight their battles as they lay behind the scenes. This is what we're up against today. Get ready for severe hate speech laws. The synagogue of Satan has employed their king, clan Trump Kushner, to make Judaism a nationality. It's been signed into an executive order, and Ashkenans wants the same three things. Number one to be like the nations a nationality. and nationality. number two, to have Washington DC, which is their kingdom, go and adjudicate for them. And number three, have DC go before them and fight their end time occult battle to set up their temple. This is now had rocket fuel added to it. And you will see what had little traction has now got thrust force to be able to go forward in an exponential rate. So we really just took a huge, massive nosedive of apocalyptic proportions with Klan Trump Kushner signing in an executive order that was spelled up by the synagogue of Satan which punishes anyone in speaking against the ashkenazi not only does it mean that but it also means that you cannot speak against the state of israel which was created in 1948 now many of you may have watched it on the television but it's very interesting to note at that ceremony of signing in that executive order, you will have to have noticed that the vice president, Mike Pence, was not standing on stage as the right-hand man of the president, was he? No, he was down with the common folk, or as the synagogue of Tan would say, the goyim. But to his right were two Chabadniks, Ivanka and Jared, standing at the right hand of the president. What did that communicate? What does that communicate? At the right hand of power, we have got a major problem. And it is addressed in this chapter specifically to the Assembly of Smyrna. This is what we're dealing with, and it is huge. And those that want to put their head in the sand, oh, you know, that's fine, but this is very important that we layer this now with the Scripture so that we can navigate ourselves through a minefield of what has happened. It's really weird that he even signed in this executive order specifying that because, uh, you know... (laughs) I mean, you know, I like historical truth. And last time I remember reading this kind of action was done by a man called Adolf Hitler when he kicked off the 1940s with the Nuremberg Laws that declared German Jews weren't of German nationality. They were of a different nationality. So this week, with the signing in of the executive order declaring Judaism as its own nationality, this then has to be, based upon historical truth, a double-edged guillotine, does it not? It's going to cut both ways. It's going to cut both ways. And the ones that are going to get cut are who? Chapter 2 tells us, the believers in Yahusha will get cut. Let me continue on. Because this has now added rocket fuel to the sluggish Noahide laws that were finding very little traction. Oh, now we've got traction. We've got rocket fuel traction now to the Noahide laws that were already signed into law. And this is now a meteoric shift toward a tribulation scenario. Meteoric. And I hear believers, and myself included, I get all up in arms about Islam, the Mohammedans, Sharia law. How many are we finding of believers getting up in arms about the Noahide laws? Because whether it's Sharia law or the Noahide laws, it's both, again, a double-edged guillotine where the ones who get cut... Are the followers of Yahushua who will not compromise? That's a specific group. It's a group that holds the testimony of Yahushua, that keeps his commandments. They are a kingdom of priests and a what? A goy, a nation of priests. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, clarified and distinguished a very separate group of people. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Yahushua and for the word of Yahuwah, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Yahushua in the millennium, Baruch Hashem, Yahuwah. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. That's my introduction for you. I'm done. No, wouldn't... I mean, that's, I, mean I'm, I, I could go home at this point because right now I am trembling in my boots. I have goose pumps. I have been... The anticipation and the... Pray for me and my family. The spiritual warfare. To know that this was what I had to teach. My wife has no idea what I'm teaching. My kids don't. Nobody does. Because for me, it's between me and Yahweh and prayer, supplication, and confirmation through the Word. And then I cannot speak it until I speak it first, right here, now. And then afterwards, you can come talk to me. But it has to. I have to birth it. But I know what's what that means, and I know the cost. And this is. So, you know, please, download our videos that are on YouTube. Download them to your hard drive. Share them with your friends. I hope we're backing everything up here, and we want to be fully backed up, because I don't know after this teaching, I hope, but we have to realize that the world has changed. The reason we were late last week was because YouTube had us made us sign out and re-sign in so that we had to accept all these new terms of service. That's why we were late last week in broadcasting. Because of the new restrictions on speech and how they now have defined hate speech. Chapter 2, verse 8. If you read this, in metropolitan London, you will get in trouble with the Metropolitan Police because they're already not protected by speech laws. Just reading this. So I'm glad I'm not in London, even though it feels like foggy, wet, drizzly London out here. And to the teaching overseer of the assembly in Smyrna, write, these things, says the first and the last who was dead, and he is alive. I know your mitzvot, your good works, your tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy, it's absolute blasphemy, of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of S. 10. Fear none of those things, that you suffer. See, S.A. Tan shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried. And that you shall have tribulation for 10 days. Now, is it possible now with these new hate speech laws and what's been signed in that you'll find that these prison sentences or these jail sentences will be for 10 years? I mean, excuse me, for 10 days. And then you're out on release restriction and your whole world has changed? just like China's got the new new, um, social scores, you'll find that this is now where we're going because it's rocket fuel to what has already been laid forth with the Noahide laws, now with this executive order. You could easily see how there could be 10 days of tribulation for speaking out such things as we are now reading this very Shabbat. Be faithful regardless of what happens. You have to be faithful even unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach says to the Israelite congregation. So if you're still watching, then I pray you give us some thumbs up that you have an ear to hear because there's already those that have bounced because they haven't an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. And that's okay, but we go where we're supposed to go and we pray that those that do have the ear will receive it and spread the good word. And I I know that this is serious because the beast, Revelation tells us, Chapter 13, verse 2 The beast gets his power, which means his seat, which means his authority from the dragon. And that is Anthropos, we're going to find. This is a nationality. The beast gets its name, the strong man, the gatekeeper. It's about authority, it's about its power, it's about specifically its seat of authority is at the right hand of the power but the power is the beast so now i'm even more concerned not necessarily just about november 2020 but maybe specifically 2024 we shall see and i know i'm jumping around a little bit here but there is one viewpoint, and I did say one viewpoint, that the two witnesses of Revelation 11 are Smyrna and Philadelphia. They both identify as following Yehusha, keeping his commandments, and they identify the strong man, both of them. And I know that we are doing such a good work as that. These are the identifying markers that those have, Smyrna and Philadelphia. They're faithful and they have been found worthy. They're aware of the works of the synagogue of Satan, and they're not afraid to expose the strong man, the anthropos, the one that wants to be made a nation and will have their king adjudicate for them. That just happened this week these two witnesses they are not lawless so they can't be found within the traditional church can they but they are also not some crazy messianic zionists playing jewish dress up so they cannot be found within the messianic movement so what assembly alone has this testimony the nation of priests that goy found within the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, we will now delve into the synagogue of Satan. It is built upon a five-fold fraud. Number one, its history is sacred history. It's a fraud. Most of its history is post-World War II, okay? All of its history that we find now disseminated on college campuses is post the Crimean War. Everything that is disseminated among, upon American campus, campuses is post the Crimean War. It has to be. I don't have time to get into that specifically, but you can do your own research. Number two... Of the fivefold fraud, genealogy, who is a Jew? What is a Jew? The key of knowledge is Zerah, seed and migration. Number three: Israel. What is Israel? Who is Israel? The key of knowledge, of course, is who is Jacob? and who is Joseph? That's the key of knowledge. Number four is priesthood. Divergent priesthoods. Malkizedic of primacy or Levitical which has passed away. You choose. This is huge to be able to nail it down so that in the days to come we will have that clarity to know where we stand. And number five the fivefold fraud, the third temple. Fiction or biblical truth? I choose fiction, sacred history, because the key of knowledge to this, we have thankfully gone through it, is the revelation of Ezekiel and the 13 scrolls a collection of 13 um, time-stamped scrolls. So there's your five-fold fraud, and now we can drill down even further because ultimately we do have divergent priesthoods, we do have divergent people, we do have divergent land, we do have divergent temple, we do have a divergent sacrifice that leads ultimately to a divergent high priest. There's two paths. One leads straight to hell, and one leads into the kingdom of Yahweh. It's really that simple, but it's really a perilous path if you go down the wrong one. So uh, first things first, it would be a jolly good time, I think, to identify what is anti-Semitism. It means in place of, Of Shemites. Shemite is where we get the term Shemetic, which then in our modern language is Semitic. So it means in place of Shemites. That is anti Semitic. Semites, of course, go back to descendants of Shem. Shem, Shemites, Shemetic, Semitic. We have to go back to Noah that we know had three sons, and the three sons, of course, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the Shemites descend from Shem. And from Shem, of course, we found Terah and then Abraham. That is the Shemetic or the Semitic line. So if you are against the descendants of who? Abraham, through the promised son, because remember, the promised son is Isaac, yet Ishmael was going to be made his own nation. That's a different deal. The promised line goes through Jacob to, excuse me, through Isaac to Abraham. The split is Ishmael, or that's another nation. That's another goy. But it's not the Goy Gadol, the great nation, which was promised to Abraham. There's a split there. There's your split. Okay. But there's another split even before that. And these splits are Zirah, are seed line splits. And these seed line splits are either Yahuwah or a cult from hell. It's not like, oh, there was a little split down the family line here. No, yeah, it was split for a specific reason. Because either you're with Yahuwah or you're with Satan. There is no in-between. It is really that simple. So we're identifying what it means to be anti-Semitic. It means to put oneself in place of the Shemitic's those who descend from the line of Shem. So if you try to steal the identity of the descendants of Shem by being an imposter, would you in fact be classified correctly as anti-Semitic? Would you? It's a question. If you're trying to, dis- to steal the identity of Shem and his descendants by being an imposter, are you, in fact, the anti-Semite? Yes, you would be. So the question remains, then, in genealogy, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. From Shem, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name is Israel who passed the blessing on through Joseph to Ephraim and Manasseh. They are a nation and 12 nations, tribal nations, Shemitic. Shemitic. All 12 tribes of Israel are Shemitic. And if you try to replace them, stand in place with them, become an imposter, try to steal the genealogy line that connects to Shem, you are, in fact, anti-Shemetic. So we have a problem, because Ham, Shem, and Japheth, from Japheth comes Goma, from Goma comes Ashkenaz, where we get the E, which are a Turkic Mongol group invented in the 8th century from the Caucasus region of the Russian steppes. What happened, there was a Turkic group living in Khazaria that were hard-pressed on both sides of their kingdom by the Mohammedans and the Christians. So, to keep peace, they converted to a mystery religion of those around their territory, a Babylonian mystery religion called Atheistic Judaism. And they became known as the European Ashkenazi, descendants of Goma and Japheth. Are they Shemites? Do they descend from Shem? You see, the scripture t- teaches the truth, but politicians don't follow the scriptures, do they? And neither do a lot of people that should be that claim the name of Yahusha. So here is where we get identity theft and anti-Semitism. It's trying to steal the birthright, trying to steal the heritage, imposters. And this is where we're at today. And now it's become law. That if you actually track back to the Bible, you could end up in trouble. Because we know that a company all 12 tribes or nations, goy, come from Jacob, Israel. Exodus, excuse me, Genesis, chapter 35, verse 11. And then in Exodus 19, verse 6, we know that the kingdom of priests and a holy goy nation is Melchizedek and thus Shemetic, correct? There's the blessing, there's the blessing. The synagogue of satan say they are Jews, descendants of the tribe of Judah connected back to Shem through Jacob, Israel and Abraham, but they are not. It's very clear and easy when you read your Bible, isn't it? But if you follow the nations instead of Jacob-Israel, you're full for the propaganda, which is sacred because it was birthed in Basel, Switzerland after the Crimean War and it's called modern-day Zionism, which is the engine that brought forth all the wars of the 20th century. Japheth Gomer, Ashkenaz, therefore Ashkenazi. These are, listen, historical truth is going to offend your sacred history. These are Turkic Mongols from the Russian steppes, the Caucasus, Asia, Caucasians. They are Asians who converted to a Babylonian mystery religion, Judaism, in the 8th century to escape the sword of Islam and to escape the sword of Christianity. Mainstream has been tricked. It's really quite clever though, isn't it? It really is quite clever. They've lied in wait, this group. For centuries, until opportunity struck at the end of the 19th century, right after the Crimean War, of course, when everything changed in Russia, Bolshevik, and it then brought forth Opportunity in Basel, Switzerland, for Theodore Herzl to bring in the front guard that would wreak havoc, Bolshevism to communism in the 20th century, which we are still reeling from, yet now has become politically expedient. And most of the people that we see in these debates are democratic, which is the secret guise for Bolshevism. It's called democratic Bolshevism. If you know your history, but you wouldn't want to use those words, let's call it democratic socialism. It goes all the way back to the end of the 19th century, but if we take it all the way back, it goes back to Japheth. Goes back to Japheth. Because they've lied in wait for centuries until opportunity struck at the end of the 19th and the turn of the 20th century. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, it is written that we should no longer be children. I fully admit, I used to be a Christian Zionist. I was a Messianic Zionist because I layered sacred history on top of the Bible like a veneer. But it started to crack and peel away the more I actually studied the scripture in Ruach and amet, spirit and truth. And then I started to peel back the flakes and I'm like, hang on a minute. Biblical Israel is connected to Jacob and Abraham. Political Israel is connected to Theodore Herzl and the synagogue of, we shall say, no more. Ephesians 4, verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed around and carried away in every wind of teaching by the tricks of men and human cleverness. It's extremely clever, used by those who do lie in wait to deceive you. In Romans chapter 9, and in John, we find these words. For not all who are descendants of Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. It is not the natural children that are Yahweh's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Children born not, not, not of natural descent, but born above is the classification that Yahweh has written in his word for us today. And we know from John chapter 11 in the 48th verse, we know it very well, that the synagogue of Esaitan, they betrayed Yahushua to preserve a national status. And this is exactly what we find right here in Revelation chapter 2 with the assembly of Smyrna and Philadelphia later. They are up against a group of deceivers that are trying to preserve a national status when Yahushua has already made his own nation a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is the dichotomy and the reality in which you and I live. And I can't believe how many people would rather just go to some Sunday Bible study about Christmas. When this stuff is boots on the ground, a spiritual reality and an awakening, and you can see it happening, unraveling before us, and I am excited, invigorated, and fearfully and wonderfully trembling before Yahuwah. But it also, you know, in sobriety, it is kind of a crazy time to live. It is expedient that one should die for the people and the whole Goy nation perish not. So the synagogue of Satan they betrayed Yahushua and his nation to preserve their own nation status. And now we are seeing it again thrust upon us in Revelation chapter 2. And you just saw it in the world in which you live if you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Carnal Israel is born of human descent. It's signed in by executive order. It chases genealogy. But eternal Israel is born above. It's born by Yahuwah, exclusively apart from human descent. Do not give heed to endless genealogy, says the apostle Paul to us, specifically because he knows our identity is born from above. But carnal Israel's identity is rooted in the flesh. It has to be signed in and administered by a king that they chose in place of Yahushua because they wanted to preserve their own national status. And then he will adjudicate for them and go out and fight their battles for them. But Yahushua is on the throne, and he said that, yes, he has given us victory, but we're going to also have to fight our battles in this world because we've already got victory in the world to come. But do not think that there will not be tribulation, my friends. The Bible assures us that there will, and if we're his, we will experience it. We've just got to prepare for it and accept it and be empowered by the fact that we are chosen in this generation to witness such stressful things as which we do because this promise was a land covenant given to Abraham Genesis 12 Genesis 15 Abraham entered into this land covenant 430 whopping years prior to the establishment of any other priesthood the levitical priesthood didn't come along till 430 years later because this promise of who Israel is who is Israel is connected to The Melchizedek promises the Melchizedek priesthood because the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that Levi paid tithe to Melchizedek through the seed, the loins of Abraham. He was in Abraham's loins. So which is superior? Elevated, denigrated. The Melchizedek is elevated and of course, political Israel must try to elevate the denigrated one. Because they are looking to build a temple made with hands to worship their sacred host. Yet we have a temple made not with hands and our king sits upon his throne. Psalm 110 clarifies that for us in prophecy. So Abraham offered up his tithe to Melchizedek. It was under the Malchizedek order of priesthood. The land covenant of Israel was always to be administered under Melchizedek priests. That's why David, under David and under the Levitical priesthood, they never attained the promises of land, did they? Never. It couldn't be. It has to go under the uh, administration of Melchizedek for the promises to take effect. So if you have a political entity created by atheistic Ashkenazis in 1948 is that going to inherit the promises of the bible no and that's where all of the christian zionists have gone wrong with their prophecies and the messianics too because they have confused veneer for the word of yahuwah and i'm i praise yahuwah that i woke up and now i get to wake many of you up and disturb many of our enemies The synagogue of Satan has tried to seize the birthright, the land, by force from Joseph. Of course, the Melchizedek priesthood, and that's why all the prophecies fail. What we have here is two brothers trying to destroy the third. We have Japheth, from which came Ashkenaz, attempting to steal what? The land, the name, and the title of Shem. That's called identity. Identity theft. And then we have Ham, from which came Mitzrayim, the Egyptians, who enslaved and stole away the one, the promised one, Joseph, to which the promised land and Israel, the name, belongs. Of course, Joseph, we have Ephraim and Manasseh, of which Jacob, Israel, put his name. And they, of course, are taskmasters, Which is what? What's taskmasters? That's called debt slavery. Both fiscal and manual labor. So what you're going to see, just as we saw in the past, there has to be an economic collapse to bring forth enslavement so that they then can rebuild. That's where we're at. We're in the pages of Scripture. Scripture. Not just Revelation, but the times of Joseph in Egypt, specifically the latter chapters of Bereshit, Genesis. So let's look at some historical truth and ruffle the feathers of those sacred history professors out there. Our past history is our present politics. The history of the synagogue of Tan we will now track as it transmutes in name, but it's always working towards the same end-time goal. So let's look at some synonyms of the synagogue of Satan, because that's important, because again, we used to have, when we were talking about the Mohammedans, we used to have Al-Qaeda, and it transmuted into ISIS, then it transmuted into IS, and you know... But it's still the same, right? It's the same, of course, that would be with the line of Ishmael. But this line now of Japheth, it's again going to transmute its name. The synonyms of the synagogue of Satan, of course, would be the Bolsheviks, the Temple Institute, Zionists, Ashkenazi, Karite, Khazar, the State of Israel, Messianic Torah observant Israel, Messianic Torah, Judaism and, of course, the groups of wisdom in Talmud, right? Those are your synonyms. The synagogue of Satan, they say they are Jews. The world actually recognizes them as Jews, even as Israel, but they lie. Listen to what Scripture reveals. We've got two verses and four identifying factors. Two verses, four identifying factors. Number one, they say they are Jews. Number two, uh, they're lying. Number three, they are not Jews. And number four, they are the synagogue of S. A. Tan. I mean, this is kindergarten stuff when you break it down. But people don't want to break it down because it is too sacred an idol to be smashed down. When you've got people like Billy Graham... Um, Chuck Hagee and all these popular people propping the idol up from behind. You've got the whole messianic movement propping the idol up. I mean, it's everywhere. You've got Washington, D.C. Prop- Everyone's pop-ling, propping the idol up. And many believers in their zeal, they prop the idol up. They don't do it for a political reason, but they aren't thinking, they just see the veneer, so they do it for religious reasons. And, and many of these people that do it, like myself in the past, they truly believe they're doing a good thing and it's all great and working for the kingdom of Yahweh. But it's not. So it's not to condemn the people. It's just that the veneer has got a great high sheen and gloss to it. And you know what, we live in a modern world with our screens that light up our eyes and we like shiny things. But once you start to examine that shine and it cracks a little bit, I just say, start peeling away. And that's what we do. I know the blasphemy of them, Revelation 2 verse 9, which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan, The synagogue of synonyms. Verse, chapter 3, verse 9 of the book of Revelation, we find it written, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. You see oh That just, that speaks to my heart. For all of this, it will be worth just that, won't it? That's the true riches. All the all the trouble, and you're breathing. You're just like he just took a total big stress. I I, I recognize that. He did. He's just like just to know that I have loved thee. It'd be worth it all, won't it? But we have to persevere, and we've got to navigate this minefield, because we want that reward, don't we? We want that, and we will. Attain it if we continue and we don't give up, even when it's frightening, even when they've come around my house and said, I know, Matthew, you've got that on your website, but if you really want to get popular in the Messianic movement, just take it down. It's not worth the controversy. And I do, so you agree with me? Oh, yes, but I would never say it publicly. You shouldn't really either if you want your ministry to grow. I'm like, well, firstly, it's not my ministry. Secondly, I don't really care because, you know, I started in the Spirit and Yahweh is with me. I'll end in the Spirit and then we'll be in the Spirit together. So it's really just a win-win-win if we all stay faithful no matter what our eyes tell us. Thank goodness I don't follow my eyes. I'd have given up so long ago. You have to stay with the creed, the conviction and what he's told us, right? That's what it's all about. All of you, you out there, you know that he spoke to you in your heart at a young age. Don't lose that. Stay with what he initially spoke to you, the truth and conviction and creed, because that's what drives us. We know Do not forsake your first love. That's what is the turbo-force of the Ruach that pushes us through. And sometimes you may have gone through despondent times, but then when you regain that first love, that's what it's all about. And many, it may have taken 20, 30, 40 years, and you're like, "This this is it. I'm here again, but now with so much more. That's powerful. And then there comes a sadness oftentimes. Because maybe the people that you loved, when you encountered your first love, are no longer with you. Maybe passed away. Maybe fallen away. Maybe you have regrets because you weren't on fire and you didn't raise your 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 seed in the way that you could have if you were as fired up as you are now. But this is common to man. This is all part of the struggle. It's part of being the assembly of the saints in these days, to push through all of that. You're not alone. So let's look at the historical truth and smack the sacred history up around the face. In 722, before the common era, the Assyrians, this is where it all started with its growth of Ashkenaz. The Assyrians living in Israel, they ask Sargon II, who was the king of Assyria in 722 to 705 before the king, um, before the common era. They ask him, hey, we'd like to have our own priest. Like our own. Like, can he come down from Bethel and set us up in all of our occult magic? We're going to have a great old time up here doing all kinds of hellacious wickedness. We'll expand it to the nations. And then in 2020, oh, they won't know what's happening because they'll all have drunk the Kool-Aid for centuries. That's pretty much what happened beginning right here with the king of Assyria because they asked him for a priest of Bethel who had recently been deported. So they're not into deportation, you see. They don't want to have strong borders. <laughs> They're not into that because it could have been their priest, like he was deported. So, what Sargon II didn't know was this was a wicked, evil, hellacious priest, the very likes of whom Yahuwah had destroyed the 10 northern tribes for to begin with, because they'd got into such wicked idolatry. He was now promoting it again at Bethel after the 723 before the common era deportation of the 10 northern tribes. So this is the birth of the priestly synagogue of Satan birthed on the hilltops of Israel in around 722 because the king of Assyria, Sargon II, didn't know that this was an evil wicked priest that would then affect the world today. Now we go forward to 538 before the common era and we have the return from of course the Babylonian captivity. Israel is confronted by the synagogue of Satan that permeated and festered up for 70 years of this occult Babylonian mystery of religion that now starts to ooze back into the land of Israel proper. Who we do we have? We have this Amorite, his name's Tobiah, and Tobiah and the men of Samaria, they mocked and opposed Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild the promises of Yahuwah. In Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 10, we encounter Nehemiah, up against the synagogue of Esatan. When Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Amamite official heard about it, they were officials. They could adjudicate law and lay it out into practice. They, of course, heard about it, and it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. There's the common thread. Then we go way forward to 164 before the common era. We're tracking the game, which is lame and poisonous, and the people are eating of and becoming sick today, the game being the synonyms or the synagogue of Satan. Of course, 164 before the common era, we get to Antiochus and the Maccabees. Now... This is the takeover of the temple and the subsequent eviction of the sons of Zadok and the breeding ground for the synagogue of Satan and the Hasmonean dynasty, which, of course, then brought forth the Herodian dynasty, which, of course, Yehusha was up against in his day and time. And he identified who their father was very clearly. So now we come forward into the time of Yehusha, and Yehusha said, you are of your father, the Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning. And then we find we come into the time of Titus, and it was in fact, this is historical truth, and it is terribly, terribly offensive to the Messianic Talmudics, Of course, it was the Levitical priesthood under Annas that set fire to the temple. And Josephus records that for us. You see, the Levites set fire and destroyed the temple rather than step aside and allow the 20,000 Malkitzeric zealots that were heralding Yahusha as their king as their high priest, they would not step aside and let the rightful Malchizedek priesthood take over after passions, of course, erupted after the death of the brother of Yahushua, James, at the temple steps. It's recorded that even Titus himself tried to do everything in his power to clench the flames. Now, you won't hear that from a Zionistic account of history because it's very telling, isn't it? As we progress forward, then we have in 70, after that, of course, the Romans now coming down into Judea and this smacks again in the face of sacred history. The Romans never, never, ever, ever, never deported entire peoples en masse. What did they do? They conquered them, they put in a prefect, they put in troops, and they managed them and adjudicated for them. Did they not? They had, remember how this all started? With they wanted a king, and they wanted their king to judge and adjudicate for them and go and fight their battles. This is what this is the whole build up of a course. Sacred history tells you that the Romans came in and they took all the Jews and they went off and dispersed them to the nations. No, no. Historical truth is that the fact that 60 years after the destruction of the second temple, there was a major Jewish uprising. That demonstrates that the Jews were still in the land. That uprising after the temple destruction, in fact, 60 years later, was called the bach Kokhba revolt. This proves that there was still a very large Jewish presence in the promised land, the holy land at that time. That was 60 years after the destruction of the temple. So historical truth is that the Jews were still in the land, the real Jews, the tribe of Judah, descendants of the tribe of Yehuda, Judah, after the destruction of the temple. So now we've got... Yahusha raised to glory the destruction of the temple, which was done at the hands of the Levitical priesthood who set fire to it because they didn't want the 20,000 followers of Yahushua to come in and take over the priesthood because, of course, Caiaphas had annulled his priesthood. They had to put a new priesthood in. It had been transferred to Yahushua. Of course, the book of Acts records that many, many devout Levites and priests converted to the priesthood the faith. They knew that the Malchizedek now was to take over Caiaphas. The Levites in rebellion, of course. James, the brother of Yahushua, who spoke this daily on the temple steps, they murdered him. He was slaughtered. They set fire to the temple. Titus rides in, tries to quench the flames, doesn't quench the flames. Of course, the Jews, the real Jews, the tribe of Yehuda, are still in the land. Sixty years after the destruction of the temple, the Bar Kokhva revolt reveals to us they're still in the land. So they're in the land. They're poor. They're destitute. They are migrant farmers that are attached to the land. They are olive merchant merchants. They've got vineyards, but they are the poor class of Jews, Yehuda, that live in the land. But there's a regal naval class which are the merchants that would go off in the in the ships around the Mediterranean they would trade trade in the fine materials of course of purple of scarlet and they were the regal class of the house of judah so we've got two classes within the house of judah the ones that wrap, that work the land agricultural and then we have of course the regal class So we're going to go forth now to 638 of the Common Era. We have the Islamic conquest of Jerusalem. Islam now conquests Jerusalem and they put all of those people that are living in the land under what's called a Dimi status. A Dimi status under Islamic law means you have to pay the Jizya tax. So now you've got all of these poor agricultural workers that cannot, they're going to to lose their land. They're going to lose their inheritance because they can't afford to live under a dimmy status of Islam. So what do they do? They convert to Islam. These are the agricultural migrant Jews. They convert to Islam to save their land. In the meantime, the Ashkenazi up in the Turkic Mongol regions they are in partnership with the biggest slavers funding them, the Islamics, the Mohammedans, and the regal class of the house of Judah, who were of darker skin, are then put into having to flee the area, and they go down into the continent of Africa, and they form a kingdom down there called the kingdom of Judah in itself. I'm getting way into my anthropology here, the study of man, right, which is going to go back to nations. So what happens now is these Jewish farmers converted to Islam so they wouldn't have to pay the jizya tax. Now you go forward about 150 years into the 8th century and you get what's called the Kingdom of Khazaria. And these are a Turkic Mongol people that live in the Caucasus at the Russian steppes. Now, these were one of the major inhabitants of the first Scythian kingdom near the Black Sea, which, of course... Remember how I started this? I hope you're tracking with me. There's a lot. Remember how I started this, how we get to it today in the 21st century, its remanifestation? It all started where? Originally, we're now seeing at the Black Sea. And where was the Crimean War? At the Black Sea. And that, of course, birthed the modern Zionist movement because that was when Russia was defeated and it could bring forth this atheistic. Bolshevism which now has reigned through the 20th century. I'm skipping all over the place, but those of you may have to press Rewind Bear with me You think it's hard to track? It's all in here and somehow have to get it from here to here to here and then where was one? So bear with me. I'm trying to do the best that I can here with years and years of study trying to communicate it. We're talking about the 8th century kingdom of Kazariah because we've been tracking the birth of the synagogue of Satan all the way from Genesis 12, of course, the promise given to Abraham, the birthing of the synagogue of Satan really birthed with, of course, Noah and his sons Japheth. Follow the line. We're now way further down the line in the 8th century with the kingdom of Khazaria, these Turkic Mongol peoples, the major inhabitants of the first Scythian kingdom near the Black Sea across from the Caucasus. The kingdom, like I said earlier, was hard pressed on one side from Christianity, hard pressed on the other side by the Mohammedans. So to keep the peace, they converted to a third religion of atheistic magicians. Babylonian Judaism, converted in the eighth century they were the descendants of japheth Gomer, Ashkenans they became Ashkenazi the Ashkenazi from the Turkish um, from the from the Russian steppes converted to Judaism and now that's where you have a satanic grafting right does that make sense it's like gene splicing it's totally corrupt but we have Judaism, and then the grafting right here of the Ashkenaz coming both in now into this modern-day political status that we're going to see. Scythian Khazars descending. We see Noah, Japheth, Gomer, Ashkenaz. That's your Genesis 10 model. Then, of course, we have the Crimean War, 1854, 1855-ish, somewhere around there in this very region with, of course, the Turks, the French, and the British against the Russians, which then, after that, we had the fall of the Czars. They were slaughtered by the Bolsheviks, and it leads into the first, uh, the leads into the Second World War. That was between the wars, right? So what we have is these Scythian Khazars. Then we have, of course the Crimean War and then after that the opportunity, the perfect opportunity for the synagogue of S.A.T.A.N. to get into its final thrust before the pages of Revelation 2 and 3 can come into fulfillment. This happened in 1897 at the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland. Then We're going to go fast now. 1917, Zionism. We're looking at synonyms of the synagogue of Satan. We've got Zionism, the Bolsheviks killing the Tsars with the Bolshevik revolution. And the Bolsheviks are in fact what? They're Khazars. They're the sons of Gomer. They're Ashkenans. We have these Russians Taken over, of course, after the czars, the Russia was taken over by atheistic Bolsheviks and Ashkenazi system, and that brought forth the USSR, right, under Lenin and Trotsky, where 250 million, astounding number, 250 million Christians were murdered by, of course, the synagogue of S.A. Tan. Then we have World War I, and we have the Bauflower Declaration of 1917, and they all have a common thread. You see, the synagogue of S.A. Tan is the common thread. The Bauflower Declaration, it originated in the war office through the Zionist leaders of Dr. Weissman and Mr. Solocloff. And it brought forth President Wilson and the Americans into the First World War to aid the Allies. Now, the fact that it was with the Ashkenazi help that brought the USA into the war on the side of the Allies, this this truly rankled the Germans ever since. It just really rankled them. Because America, initially, it's surprising that we speak English over here because it was going to be German. There was such German influence um, in the um, uh, 18th and 19th century in the Americas. It was huge, huge, positive, so that when the Americans got brought into the First World War by the Ashkenazi, the Germans were really, like, rankled by it. Like, what? We're we're supposed to be together, allies, right? So how did it get in? Money, right? Right. Because the Ashkenazi connection, we'll get through that. The fact is that with the Jewish help, we had the Americans brought into the war on the side of the Allies. And of course, we know that Rothschild was a signer on this document. The Bauflower Declaration, his, his signature is right upon that document. Then, of course, we have the decimation of World War I. And then the, the Germans, they're put under the Versailles Treaty. The Versailles Treaty just inflicted such economic devastation and damages upon the Germans that they just, the whole country just capitulated and it went down the absolute toilet. Because at that point we had the Bolshevik bankover, the banker takeover of Eastern Europe. Because at this point in the 1920s in Berlin, It was wicked as hell. All the Bolshevik pornographers were there. There was huge Bolshevik pornography, lesbianism, homosexuality, major opium dens. And if you look at some of the 1920s, the history on some of the 1920s early Hollywood um, stars, they would go over there for the illicit, wicked things that conservatives would not tolerate in 1920s America. 1920s Berlin, it was a den of iniquity. It was immoral, it was absolutely lewd. This, of course, I mean Hitler did not come to power in a vacuum. There was a major problem going on in Germany and he was voted in unanimously by the people because of what their world was. And they were in big, big trouble at the hands of the synagogue of satan, Because at this point, the synagogue of satan and immorality had permeated through Berlin. The, Vi- the Versailles Treaty had busted the Germans where a whole wheelbarrow full of marks would be needed just to buy a loaf of bread. And you'd go out with your wheelbarrow full of marks. And by the end of the day, you'd need two wheelbarrowfuls of marks just to get a loaf of bread. So in 1923, one U.S. dollar was worth one trillion German marks. So they were in major trouble, full of vice. The bankers, the Bolsheviks had taken over. They were indebted. They lost everything. The Germans... They had to sell all of their precious art, and the only people who had money were one and one equals two, and they were evicted by their landlords, who were the bankers, into the streets, so now you can see later on in their German history why there was a group of people that collected art. Why? because they were repossessing what had been sold by the broke Germans to the bankers at dreadful cut-down prices just so that they could get a loaf of bread. That they were evicted by their landlords out of their houses and onto the streets. And this, Hitler didn't come to power in a vacuum. There's a whole reason for all of this. Not justifying wickedness, but telling you this is historical truth that is so politically incorrect because the sacred idols have to be propped up so that they can get on with the synagogue of Satan propaganda and lead people unsuspecting to the third temple. In the Daily Express on March the 24th, 1934, there was a headline, Judea, declares war on Germany. How would Judea declare war on Germany in 1934? Guns, bullets, or through loans and currency and economic strangulation? Because what we're talking about here is where follow the money. Ashkenaz and the economy. And that's where we found ourselves. The Germans at this point are in a desperate strait. Desperate strait. Selling off their art. They've been evicted by the Bolsheviks from their homes. And now, 20 years later, we find what? Another group comes in and they were voted in by the Germans... They go to repossess what was stolen from their countrymen, including residents, including art. And like I say, this now marches on forward. Because what we find is we can talk about all kinds of holocausts and wickedness and things that happen. But part of a historical truth is that the synagogue of Satan killed 10 million Ukrainians in the holocaust. It was called the Holdemar Holocaust, 10 million. And you don't read about that in your modern day history. And being from an English family that's quite political, you could see now how Winston Churchill could easily get caught up in the crosshairs of the synagogue of satan Because Winston Churchill initially exposed the, the um, Bolsheviks in the Jewish Bolsheviks, in fact, in the 1920s. He exposed them politically and even wrote in the newspapers of London exposing Bolshevism and how dangerous it was. Even here in America, it was so... um, Everybody knew how dangerous Bolshevism was. It even comes out in some of the earlier movies, like Annie, the movie kids' movie, Annie, right? There's a whole theme of Bolshevism in there. There's Bolshevism terrorism, right? Or maybe it's the king and I. I'm not sure. I think it's Annie. I'm looking at my son. He'd know. Is it Annie? The one with Yul Brynner, I believe that is. Is that Annie? Oh, that's the king and I. Yeah, the king and I. I believe that one. You ha- Yes, the king and I. Yeah, that's got the theme of Bolshevik terrorism right within it. Everybody knew the origins of this and how dangerous it was and the reality of where it came from. Winston Churchill exposed this in the 1920s, but later his political career was drying up. He had a very big, very big estate to manage that had been passed down to his family. He was, of course, a, a, a fighter in the Boer War, in, against the Afrikaners in the late 1880s. And Winston Churchill was you know, successful soldier. He was a successful politician, but then he was running out of money. He was gonna lose his family home, his whole estate that had been passed down through land gentry over centuries. And who comes to the rescue to bail him out and to give him lots and lots of capital and money as long as he stops saying what he was saying about them and thrust them forward. And of course they said, yes, 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 come to power. And And all of a sudden, in his late ages, he was quite old when he became really powerful. He had been a backbencher for years, but he has now got capital. He is funded by the Ashkenazi bankers. He was a political backbencher, but then he capitulated to the Bolshevik finances who promised to ignite his political career just as they had done with FDR on the other side of the Atlantic. And now you find yourself right in the midst. But there's one who's going to thrust a spanner in the whole works, so we better kill him. What are we going to do with General George S. Patton? He blew the lid off the whole thing. He went into post-World War II Germany and he got there. He saw the devastation and he's like, we fought on the wrong side. We should have been against the westward push of the Bolsheviks. Do you realize what the next 70 years is gonna look like now? And so he died in a car crash. Of course, this went all the way forward now, what General George S. Patton discovered now is birthed from Bolshevism into 70 years of atheistic communism. Of course, many of you that grew up in this country in the 50s and 60s were hiding under your school desk and you were always thinking that the Great Bear was going to encroach through the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything. This is all orchestrated and it wasn't until that brick came out of the wall in 1989 when final Bolsheviks fled the USSR and they got safe passage where? 1989, you see mass immigration of Russians, aka Bolsheviks, into the modern state of Israel who are now, of course, the very leaders that are now partnering, partnering with those that integrated the... Um, um there's a lot going on in this little mind today what are we talking about executive order of course it all falls forward with that (laughs) bear with me we'll take a sip from our sponsor and if you're still with us baruch hashem Yahweh, i'm barely with us but i'm still excited give us some thumbs up on this video Okay subscribe to the channel keep it going in the chat really appreciate some of our hosts in the chat Michelle's doing a fabulous job I think Michelle was a school teacher at some time because she takes what i'm saying really fast and she can nail it out phenomenal job thumbs up to you in the chat all of you those that are ashkenazi trying to st- Sleep in, in the chat, just kick them out, okay? We will not tolerate infiltration from the synagogue of SA At this point, we'll dive right back in. That was my comedic break of light-heartedness. That wasn't even funny, but it was a break for me. I'm just going to finish up with a little bit of history. Because I do think it's important to track this. Even if you don't watch the whole teaching in one go, it's very important to be able to track this because ultimately it does connect and will lead forward through the very, very revelation of Yahushua the Messiah. And revelation, whether you like it or not, it is a complex maze. But it is in a beautiful garden the Garden of Yahweh, the Garden of Eden. It's administered by Yahushua, and it is a maze that we will get through. But we will not get through it in one teaching. We will not get through it in one setting. But we will incrementally make ourselves passage safely through the maze of revelation. This is a lot to handle. If you think it's a lot to handle, imagine being me i am a lot to handle myself me myself and i i have to live with me can you imagine that and i know a lot of you right now are being really facetious and my wife's most probably watching at home she's she is actually because they're under the weather today so pray for my family not in a bad dreadful way but you know in an oregon way in an oregon way well we're going to get through the maze but today, we're in the fairly, fairly, fairly initial stages of this maze. With the history of the synagogue of Esaetan, we now get to the end of the World War II. Dreadful times, dreadful times. And many, many people talk about the wicked, wickedness of the Nazis and the terror and all of these things. But what they don't talk about is the German non-combatants. 100,000 Women and children were incinerated in one night in Dresden by the British and the Americans, mainly the British. Today we'd call that a war crime, indiscriminate bombing. Young children, mothers, Christians, believers, 100,000 in a single night. That's a holocaust. That's trauma, that is wickedness. There would be entire families, entire families. Between April and May of 1945, as the Bolsheviks, the Ashkenans were pushing from the East into Germany, whole families would commit suicide. Within 72 hours, within the village of Denin, which was first in line for the Bolsheviks, a 1,000 people committed suicide. Mothers with their children because they knew what the Bolshevik atheistic Ashkenazis would do because their clergy had already warned them because, of course, in the Talmud, in Keterbote 40A and yeah, Both 60B, the rabbinical concessions for rape and abuse of children were already authorized by the rabbis, rabbis, and the German clergy knew that it was authorized. 7,000, mostly women, in Berlin, at the fall of the war, committed suicide because they knew what would happen. If you read, and it's terrifying, what the Bolsheviks did to women and children, unarmed combatants, after the fall of Germany, that the Allies stepped aside and turned a blind eye because they wanted to parlay with the Bolsheviks and break up the land and get the booty, what they turned aside a blind eye to, is disgraceful. That's why they will not teach it on college campuses. It is outrageous. Terrifying. It's a, it's a history. The Germans aren't even allowed to read. It's not in their textbooks. And you'd be arrested if you even spoke this in Germany today. 7,000, mostly women, In Berlin committed suicide because they knew what the rabbinical concession to rape and abuse of children was in the Talmud that allowed it and they knew that was now coming to them a thousand families a thousand in the village of Denim within 72 hours and then of course that is what I would call the unknown Holocaust not only the Holdemore not only Dresden, but, of course, the dreadful suicides of the people. Then we have what's called this Havara Agreement. It's called a transfer agreement. And this was an agreement between the Nazis and not Nazi Germany, I should say, and the Zionist German Jews. And it was signed in on the 25th of August, 1933. Now, later Hitler turned this into what he saw a better plan called the Madagascar Plan. But this was an answer, an ideal answer, he thought, to the so-called Jewish question. But by September 1940, its future was doomed. But you should see this Havara Agreement and Madagascar Plan Was a very different plan than what we're told Nazi Germany actually had today. This is a historical fact, but again, this doesn't really, this totally contradicts sacred history. I can't get into it because we're on YouTube, but you can look into those two agreements if you want to further the Havara Agreement and the Madagascar Plan. And then out of that, we finally get to right where J.P and Goma have been going ever since the start. They get something adjudicated for them. They get a piece of land in 1948 and the creation of the state of Israel. This is the goal. This is the major goal now of the synagogue of es orchestrated through the killing of the tsars, two world wars, and now it finally comes into fruition This is a plan of the Zio Bolsheviks Herzl and Lord Rothschild that is fully realized. Now Theodore Herzl was an atheistic Ashkenazi. He sacrificed the religious Torah Jews on the altar of atheistic Zionist Khazars and he aided in the increase of suffering of these religious Torah Jews and assisted the secular nations in the persecution of the true Torah Jews. He fanned the flames of anti-Semitism to bring about this hellish goal. Of course, the goal birthed in Basel was what? A state of Israel and Zionism. Now, originally... When the first Prime Minister of Israel came in, his name was David Ben-Gurion, Prime Minister of Israel. And he said this, If I could save all the children of Germany by bringing them to England and only half to Israel, I would choose the second. Now, David Ben-Gurion was willing to sacrifice millions of children on the altar of Zionism to found the state of Israel rather than save them from Germany. Do you realize that? that? Those are his words. I'm just reading you history here. Save them all by shipping them out of Germany to England or leave them there, but then we'll be able to get a state of Israel out of it. I'll take the second, his words. Now, in 1918, historians, of course, David Ben-Gurion, before he was Prime Minister of Israel, he was a historian of historical truth. And another guy who ended up being the future president of the State of Israel, his name, of course, was Yitzhak ben Zvi, wrote this. To argue after the conquest of Jerusalem by Titus and the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, Jews altogether ceased to cultivate the land of Israel is to demonstrate complete ignorance in the history and the contemporary literature of Israel. The Jewish farmer, like any other farmer, was not easily torn from his soil which has been watered, had been watered by his sweat and the sweat of his forebears. Despite the repression and suffering, the rural population remained unchanged. The Fehalim, the farmers, are descendants of the ancient Jews. Now, I told you that, but the future president of Israel, who was a historian along with Um, David Ben-Gurion, who was a historian, wrote this before the formation of the land, the state of Israel, I should say, that the present inhabitants in then what was called Palestine, the farmers, they were descendants. The farmers, the agricultural peasants, were descendants of the true tribe of Judah. That's the huge paradigm shift. The ancient Jewish peasants converted to Islam for material reasons so that they wouldn't have to pay the jizya tax to the Mohammedans and be under a dimi status. And of course, then we get to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, where it's written, For the poor shall never cease out of the land, therefore i command you saying you shall open your hand wide to your brother to your poor and to your needy in the land so what happened if you've got the prime minister of the state of israel the future prime minister and the future president they recognized that all the farmers that were in the land prior to it becoming a state that they were the real descendants the actual descendants that were there from the time of Yahushua. That yes, they had converted to Islam to prevent them paying the jizya tax, but they were the ones that were still descendants of their people. Or well, something happened. The massacre of Hebron, in Hebron. And that changed everything. That changed the history for Israel, the state. And they move them from historical truth into sacred history. Because we have a major problem. Because after Hebron, the descendants of Jewish peasantry vanishes from the Jewish Zionist national consciousness. You don't find it anymore. It's called sacred history. is now trumped historical truth. The Fehalim, the farmers, are now revised to be Arabian immigrants, Palestinians. That's their sacred history. There's a revision, which brings us, of course, into a very big reason why this exec- executive order was signed. So the real Shemites, the Fehalim, the farmers, were the rural farmers found in the land at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. What we call today the Palestinian Christians, Palestinians and other anti-Zionist, non-Ashkenazi, Torah-keeping Jews, and it can be all over the world. You've got the Yemenite Jews, the black African Shemites, and many of these were taken in slave ships from the kingdom of Judah, Deuteronomy 28, verse 68, by the synagogue of Satan, of course, the Ashkenazi Jews in the 17th and 18th century. I mean, many people go, oh, the Portuguese were the slavers. Oh, the British were the slavers. Oh, the slave ships. They put, all the Americans were the slavers. But if you actually go back, slavery comes from where it originated was those Slavic nations. Yugoslavia, um, che- Czechoslovakia, those Slavic Nations, because up in those Slavic nations is where the Turkic Mongols, of course, were the biggest slavers. That's where slavery, the term, comes from. And Ashkenazi slaving, Turkic Mongol slaving, was huge. Jewish scholar Jonathan Shawson writes this, quote, Jewish merchants routinely possessed enormous numbers of slaves temporarily before selling them off. You see, if a slave auction fell on a Jewish holiday, it was postponed due to the lack of buyers and sellers. The Jews of Suriname gave their slave plantation Hebrew names, such as Machachanaim, Nachamu, and Goshen. Rabbi Herbert Bloom adds this quote The slave trade was one of the most important Jewish activities and in 19 and uh, excuse me and in 1694 we find from history Jews owned 9000 Africans Those were the regal Negroes of the house of Judah that formed the kingdom of Judah that were brought over to the early Americas. But they were the regal class. Remember I said there was two classes. There was the peasant class. And the regal class that were merchant shipmen that went around the Mediterranean basin, selling, of course, the purple, the linen, and the scarlet. And we see that through the scripture. These were the regal Negroes and now of the house of Judah. And we find in 1694, the Ashkenazi owned 9,000 of them. Jewish slaving is actually confirmed by the Jewish encyclopedia but you'll have to get the older editions. You see, that's the problem. They come out with a new edition. It's slightly up. It's like the NIV, right? Updating everything. And now even, I think, in the NIV, they've got gender-neutral terms. It's crazy. I mean, really, there's so much to unpack here, but I've gone on too long and having too much fun. You've got places to go. You've got places to go, and believe it or not, I've got somewhere to go. It is Shabbat. Praise Yahuwah. To sum it up, truly, we live in wild, crazy times. And what's going on, it doesn't track to anti-Semitism. It is, of course, Japheth trying to steal the birthright. Japheth Gomer Ashkenazi, synonyms for the synagogue of S.A.T.A.N. And now we get it signed by executive order into our modern day. It truly is a battle. It really is just a pure case of insolence, isn't it? Of course, First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1, it is written, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright, yet Judah acted, the Hebrew word here is gebar, insolently. Judah acted insolently over his brothers and from him came a ruler, although the birthright, which is the land, which is the name Israel, belongs to Joseph. So this is really identity theft. That's what this is about. Revelation chapter 2, Smyrna identifies those that are involved in identified theft. And this is where we're at in the world today. And it is of serious consequence for us to navigate the maze of Revelation and the maze of the world in which we do live today. Because we live in the world, even though we are not of the world, we must be aware of our present circumstances and then apply the word supernaturally to be able to endure it, to go through this world without fear, without trembling, and to have clarity of what our war is. For our war is not against flesh and blood. It is a principality, but it manifests itself here with the synagogue of S.A. Tan, which, of course, was at work this week triumph triumphantly with the signing of that executive order. Questions, comments? Do we have anything? We, we don't have um, a mic manager today, do we? That's okay. So we don't have any questions because we weren't organized enough to be able to do it the way that we do it, but maybe there's a better way of doing it. But you're still here. If you've been hate-watching all the way to here, then give us some thumbs up. And if you've been tuning in because you have an ear to hear and you've got eyes to see, then give us some thumbs up too because today is the day that Yahuwah has made and we shall rejoice and be glad in it. It is Shabbat. We'll catch you live, Yahweh willing, next Shabbat. Well, we'll dig into Part Three of Chapter Two, and we'll be digging into Balaam, unearthing the donkey's ass.